from deep inside your audio device of choice. We all on board today? Welcome back, everybody who wasn't with us last week. We missed you uh, from New Orleans again. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of close to the microphone today because if I turn the microphone, if I move a little farther away and turn, turn it, the volume up on the microphone a little bit, you'll hear all the thunder outside because we're not really that soundproof. And worse than that, there it is now. It might sound to you like somebody's constantly flushing a toilet nearby, but it's thunder. I swear we're under thunder. Ladies and gentlemen, more information coming to light about honeybees and neonicotinoid pesticides. Biologists from the University of California in San Diego, they have one there, have demonstrated for the first time that a neonicotinoid insecticide used on your corn, your soybeans, and your cotton is damaging to honeybees. Well, but you want your soybeans. The research revealed that long-term exposure to the pesticide over one to two days... Well, you know, honeybees have short lives, so their time spans are... Reduce the ability of the bees to fly is all. It's just reduce their ability to fly, you see, is what it did. And short-term exposure briefly increased their activity where the bees flew farther, but erratically. Okay, bees, you got your choice. No flying or crazy flying. Bees that fly more erratically for greater distances may decrease their probability of returning home. The obvious stated by a professor at UC San Diego's Division of Biological Sciences. The honeybee is a highly social organism, so the behavior of thousands of bees is essential for the survival of the colony. We've shown that a sublethal dose may lead to a lethal effect on the entire colony, he added. Researchers are now raising concerns about how pesticides could impact the insect's ability to pollinate and what its long-term impact on the health of honeybee colonies is. You know... I'm going to say this to the honeybees. Flying's overrated. Really. Get over it. Get over yourselves, honeybees. A, a place that's doing a good job of getting o- over itself is the United Nations Women's Rights Commission. They got over themselves so much, they elected Saudi Arabia to the Commission on the Status of Women. The addition of the country that has probably one of the most strictest regimes limiting women's rights and freedom in the world was flagged by UN Watch, a non-governmental body that monitors the UN. The main mission of the Commission on the Status of Women is to assess the challenges to reaching gender equality. The organization's executive director criticized the election, which occurred in a secret vote during the UN's Economic and Social Council. One critic called the uh, election of Saudi Arabia to uh, the Women's Rights Council absurd. It's like making an arsonist, an arsonist into the town fire chief. All women in Saudi Arabia must have a male guardian who makes all critical decisions on her behalf, controlling a woman's life from birth to death. Saudi Arabia also bans women from driving cars. Saudi Arabia is also on the UN Human Rights Council. They like councils. Money will buy you everything, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, women in Saudi Arabia can't drive. We'll talk later in this broadcast about someone else who can't. Oh, speaking of which, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Donald Trump and his longtime friend, media mogul Rupert Murdoch, 
turns out, now have weekly chats about strategy, according to closest, uh, sources close to both of them. Decades earlier, the New York Post kind of made Trump, inflating him and his associated ego, going from a local real estate developer, and not a major one, to a multimillionaire gossip column staple in the 1980s, largely due to the New York Post. Murdoch and Trump discussed strategy in their weekly calls. Murdoch also called uh, Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, after that conference in which Spicer erroneously said Hitler didn't use chemical weapons during the Second World War and referred to concentration camps as Holocaust centers. Remember that? That was good. Spicer, of course, apologized. The New York Times says the relationship between Trump and Murdoch is deeper and more enduring than most in Trump's life, and the two commiserate, unquote. Not noted in the story, the Justice Department, there's that toilet, the Justice Department has opened, uh, has opened an investigation into News Corp, Nice Corp, sorry, and its payments to certain people uh, who were listed under the uh, regime of the now deposed chief of the Fox News Channel, Roger Ailes, as consultants, trying to see what they actually did for that money and whether that was in any way connected with the sexual atmosphere around the Fox News Channel under Roger Ailes. But that would have nothing to do with what Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump are talking about, don't you think? Ladies and gentlemen, I, as you know, try to be a, a, a force for evil rather than for good. You know, it's better to tear a million things down than to build one thing up. But I am going to be constructive for just one moment here, if you'll, if you'll pardon me. It's, we're supposed to get exercise. We're, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what they keep telling us. You know, diet and exercise, diet and exercise. And one of the best ways to get exercise if you're in a building with multiple stories, fewer than, you know, 72, is to take the stairs instead of the elevator. That's just obvious, except for one thing. There is no publicly maintained interior space more aesthetically displeasing, at least in the United States, than your average stairwell. So, you know... Instead of denouncing all of us as fatsos, why don't the people who run and maintain and own multi-story buildings in this country fix up your stairwells, make them nice, invite kids in to paint murals, maybe include the stairwell in your ventilation system, maybe have it swept more than once a year. Stairwells, not hell holes. That's good advice from the Good hands, people, here at Hello, Welcome to the Show. Dora Alice, eu bem que lhe disse Amar a tolice é bobagem e ilusão Eu prefiro viver tão sozinho Ao som do lamento do meu violão eu bem que lhe disse Olha essa embrulhada em que vou me meter Agora amor, Doralice meu bem Como é que nós vamos fazer? Doralice, eu bem que lhe disse Amar a tolice é bobagem e ilusão 
viver tão sozinho Ao som do lamento do meu violão Dora Alice, o bem que lhe disse Olha esse embrulhado em que vou me meter Agora amor, Dora Alice, meu bem Como é que nós vamos fazer? Um belo dia você me surgiu Eu quis fugir, mas você insistiu Alguma coisa bem que andava me avisando Até parece que eu estava adivinhando Eu bem que não queria me casar contigo Bem que não queria enfrentar este perigo Doralis, agora você tem que me dizer Como é que nós vamos fazer? Stormy New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? It won something, unlike the rest of this show. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. The one-two punch of warming waters and ocean acidification is predisposing some marine mammals to dissolving quickly under conditions already occurring off the Northern California coast. That's from a study from the University of California, Davis. It's like this, the same, it's like this one university is doing all these studies. No wonder tuition costs so much. In the study published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society Biological Sciences, researchers at Davis raised bryozoans, also known as moss animals, mm, in seawater tanks and exposed them to various levels of water temperature, food, and acidity. The scientists found that when grown in warmer waters and then exposed to acidity, the bryozoans quickly began to dissolve. Large portions of their skeletons disappeared in as little as two months. Let me say to the bryozoans, skeletons are overrated. We thought there would be some thinning or reduced mass, said the lead author, but the whole features just dissolved practically before our eyes, he said. Bryozoans are colonial animals. I guess we had them in uh, Williamsburg. Superficially related, similar to but not related to corals. They're abundant in California kelp forests and are calcareous, calcareous, meaning they build their honeycomb-shaped skeletons from calcium carbonate. The scientists found that when raised under warming conditions, bryozoans altered their chemical composition by building higher levels of magnesium into their skeletons, particularly if they're eating less food. Now, word to bryozoans. Don't be dieting. 
When exposed to acidic conditions already observed off coastal California, these changes predispose the animals to dissolve. The researchers consider them a canary in the coal mine for other marine animals that build calcareous skeletons containing magnesium, like sea stars, sea urchins, and tube-building worms. During the experiments, the animals shut the bryozoans shut down parts of themselves when undergoing the stress of acidification, redirecting their energy to new growth. They were trying to grow, but were dissolving at the same time. That's got to be frustrating. A new study from University of Colorado in Boulder, thank goodness somebody else, some other university is studying something, indicates tropical forests may surprisingly accelerate their growth in warmer and wetter conditions. This is good news because they take up more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere under such conditions. Tropical rainforests are often described as the lungs of the earth. I'd hate to visit the spleen of the earth. Able to inhale carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and exhale oxygen in return. The faster they grow, the more they mitigate climate change by absorbing CO2. Scientists have been wondering what would happen when this vital carbon sink experiences temperature rise and increased rainfall. Some have theorized that forest growth will dramatically slow with high levels of rainfall. But the University of Colorado researchers did an unprecedented review of data from 150 forests, concluding just the opposite. As large-scale climate patterns shift in the tropics and some places get wetter and warmer, forests will accelerate their growth, which is good for taking carbon out of the atmosphere, says one of the researchers. Some good news to build you up for some bad news. Global mean sea level is rising 25% faster now than it did during the late 20th century, largely due to increased melting of the Greenland ice sheet. According to a new study, satellites first started measuring sea level rise in 1993. The new study revisits how well these measurements agree with independently observed changes in the various components contributing to sea level rise, like melting of glaciers to the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. The new study finds the global mean sea level on average... Height of the world's oceans has been increasing by 0.1 inches per year on average. And by 0.03 inches during the second half of the satellite period. The increase is... I'm going to do the math on this one more time before reading any more of it. The Arctic is warming more than twice as fast, however, as the rest of the planet. That's according to a huge reassessment of the region. The warming is hastening the melting of Arctic ice and boosting sea level rise. The report, compiled by more than 90 scientists, documents the myriad changes already underway the Arctic, across the Arctic because of climate change, from declining sea ice and melting glaciers to shifting ecosystems and weather patterns. From 2011 to 2015, the assessment finds, the Arctic was warmer than at any time since records began, around 1900. You'd think if they were starting records then, they'd keep a record of the exact date, but... You'd be wrong. Sea ice continues to decline, and the extent of snow cover across the Arctic regions of North America and Eurasia each June has halved as compared to observations before 2000. This is from Nature magazine. The findings come from the snow, water, ice, and permafrost in the Arctic report, a comprehensive assessment compiled every few years, a little vague there, by the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program, a scientific body that reports to the governments that make up the Arctic Council. Those would be the countries that can't wait to get their hands on the Arctic oil once the place melts. The take-home message is that the Arctic is unraveling, says uh, the chairman of a group of conservation groups 
called Arctic 21. There's some thunder for you. The fate of the Arctic has to be moved out of the world of scientific observation and into the world of government policy, he says. The report increases projections for global sea level rise, which take into account all sources of melting, including the Arctic. So you got your good news, you got your bad news. But you got your news of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. News of our friends at the United States Army Corps of Engineers, the Let Us Try people. Well, they're not trying, they're doing. For the third straight year, the Army Corps of Engineers are going to use controversial lethal methods to reduce the population of cormorants near the mouth of the Columbia River because cormorants eat salmon. You could try what the uh, grocery stores do and uh, try feeding them Arctic char when they run out of salmon. They look like salmon, kind of. The Army Corps' goal this year is to kill about 2,400 birds. Sorry, cull. I'm sorry, kill. And spray about 4,000 nests with vegetable oil, which prevents the eggs from hatching. This year's actions began a couple weeks ago. The goal is to reduce the number of breeding pairs on an island to about 5,600. That's down about two-thirds. No official current breed count is available. The uh, next year is the last scheduled year of the cormorant killing. That's, that's, cormorants should be happy to hear that. According to the Corps, trustworthy people all, double-crested cormorants eat up to 11 million juvenile salmon annually, making that, them a threat to the survival of the juvenile salmon, which are listed in the Endangered Species Act. In some years, they've eaten up to 18% of all the young Columbia River salmon. 18%. What happens to the rest of them? Well, there are some dams on the Columbia River. But forget about those. Let's concentrate on the birds. The Corps spent about $2.2 million during the first two years of the program. Studies and reports are included in addition to the actual killing, calling, killing. The agency has no plans to deviate from its original blueprint. Portland Audubon Society representatives continue to oppose the plan. They're using it as a distraction, says the Portland Audubon Society, from the real causes of salmon decline, which are the Columbia and Snake River dams. Forget about the dams. What about the birds? Daylon Oroville, speaking of dams, late in the afternoon of February 12th, Sheriff Corey Honea was at the Emergency Operations Center for the tallest dam in America, the Oroville Dam, when he overheard someone say something that stopped him in his tracks. This is not good. In the end, after frantic action, action by the dam's keepers, catastrophe was averted by a U, an AP examination of state and federal documents, emails on, uh, obtained under public records requests, and numerous interviews reveal a sequence of questionable decisions and missteps, some of them made years ago, some in the middle of the crisis. Stuff happens, said the head of the California Department of Water Resources, but the Army Corps of Engineers was... Uh, Involved as well, the Friends of the River and other environmental groups had argued as as far back as 2005 that the earthen spillway adjoining the dam had to be reinforced with concrete. The Department of Water Resources and local water agencies said it was unnecessary. Ultimately, the spillways broke apart while handling just a fraction of the water they were designed to carry. That sounds familiar to us here in New Orleans. Oh, yes, here we go. Rick Peppelman, chief of the Army Corps' engineering division for the region, 
said his agency and the state water managers made the best decisions they could. A federal uh, ordered investigation is underway. The spillways will need hundreds of millions of dollars in repairs after the flooding this year, said Rick Peppelman of the Army Corps. It's kind of the hindsight thing, kind of the hindsight thing. The expectation was the emergency spillway was going to be able to pass. That was the expectation, much like it was here. But then comes that hindsight thing. And Deadline Glasgow, Montana, it's best known for peace and quiet, but not far away, holding back one of the biggest reservoirs in the world and sitting on the Missouri River is the Fort Peck Dam. I believe it's the most hazardous dam in America. That's not me talking. It's Dr. Bernard Shanks, former land and wildlife advisor to the governors of California and Arizona. He's been studying the dams on the Missouri for more than four decades. He says the problem starts with how the Fort Peck Dam was built. The Army Corps of Engineers say the dam was constructed of hydraulic fill, which is basically a slurry of mud and water pumped from both downstream and upstream of the dam location. It's not a safe methodology to build dams, says Shank. The technique makes them more likely to collapse suddenly and catastrophically, which, in fact, happened when the dam was constructed in 1938. When other hydraulic-filled dams collapsed, as in California in the 1970s, the industry began moving away from that technique. Shank says if a dam this big were to fail, there would be deadly consequences downstream. It would make the damage from 9-11 look like a drive-by shooting. Unquote. Dr. Bernard Shanks. After uh, epic flooding a few years ago, the Army Corps proposed some repairs to the dam. Didn't get all the money they asked for. But the Army Corps says that the flood event of 2011 gave them confidence in the Missouri River Dam system. The thing that struck us was they operated as designed. We went through the flood well, according to Brent Budd of the Army Corps. Shanks begs to differ. But let them try. Let them try. The United States Army Corps of Engineers, the motto, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is Essayons. Let us try. And now, news from outside the bubble. Well, sir, Italian investigators believe that a number of Islamic State fighters from Libya have slipped into Europe. How's that Libya thing working out for us? This is how. They're infiltrating a scheme designed to give hospital treatment to wounded regular Libyan government soldiers. An Italian intelligence document seen by the Guardian newspaper reveals a complex network in which, starting in 2015, members of ISIS and others linked to jihadi movements have infiltrated Europe, pretending to be injured so as to be treated in clinics and then freed to move elsewhere in Europe and the Middle East. Smuggling wounded men out of Libya. They're using this strategy to travel out of Libya with false passports. The French government already claimed that ISIS has developed a sophisticated capacity to manufacture as many as 200 false passports. Italian intelligence says it's an unknown number of wounded fighters of IS in Libya have been transported out of that country to a Turkish hospital to undergo medical treatment. So it was, it was a good thing to topple that regime. And 
on the issue of, that we are dealing with here in New Orleans, the echoes of history echoing long down the hallways of history after the original sound has died out, particularly regarding slavery. And uh, Edward Colston is a cult figure in Bristol, England. Streets, buildings named after him. He was a 17th century philanthropist who gave great sums of money to the city. Money he made from the slave trade. The concert venue Colston Hall will reopen in 2020 with a new name. A poll uh, for the Bristol Post found people opposed renaming the venue 2 to 1. It's probably the first significant change in the UK, says uh, director of the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership at University College London. There will be others, he says. It's a wider process that's unfolding in the U.S., and it's probably true in France to a certain degree. Anywhere there's a significant imprint of slavery and maybe the wider imprint of colonialism, this will happen more and more. We've had, in the end, he says, a public culture that's been relatively unreflective of the post-colonial moment. That's no longer a tenable position, unquote. Yes, I mentioned New Orleans. Some uh, statues, or at least one, erected not uh, at the end of the Civil War to uh, honor those who led it or fought it, but uh, at the end of Reconstruction to remind the folks here um, white supremacy was in the reascendance. Uh, at least one has been taken down. It had to be taken down, apparently according to the city, at 1 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, and at least one person has been arrested, charged with threatening to shoot the mayor and to uh, prevent the taking down of any more Confederate-era monuments. The echoes of history, ladies and gentlemen. Down the hallways of time. That was news from outside the bubble, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast before I started yakking. And um, now, uh, there has, it seems like, and this is just a personal reaction, it seems like it's been about 100 days since the media started their countdowns and their assessments of Donald Trump's first 100 days. It's, you know, nothing, the news media likes nothing more than a day they can plan for well in advance. So uh, you can take your pick of any, any of those you like. But uh, Reuters News Service uh, got an interview, one of the many he's been doing this week, because he thinks the 100-day thing is so ridiculous, so he did a bunch of interviews to celebrate it, uh, with Donald Trump. And uh, there were a lot of interesting little tidbits that flowed out of it. One was that there is a red button on his desk, not the one you're thinking of. He pushes that red button, and somebody brings him a, a Coke. And there were more revelations as well. I loved my previous life. I loved my previous life. I had so many things going. I, I, I actually, this is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. I thought it was more of a, I'm a details-oriented person, I think you would say that. But I do miss my old life. This, I like to work, so that's not a problem. But this is actually more work. Uh, and while I had very little privacy in my old life, because, you know, I've been famous for a long time, 
I really, this is this is much less privacy than I've ever seen before. I mean, this is, you know, something uh, something that's really amazing. At the same time, you're really into your own little cocoon because you have such massive protection that you really can't go anywhere. I used to like, I was able to go out to restaurants, and even though people like knew who I was, I like to what? You like to drive. Yeah, I like to drive. <laughs> I can't drive anymore. At the top of the heap Like Some kind of Yoda I push the red button Someone brings me a soda you think I'd be happy There's gold rugs on the floor But the deal's going real sappy I can't drive anymore I accomplished so much by my 100th day. At least that's what everyone and my staff gets to say. I've ordered some bombing, very light on the gore. But even that wasn't calming. I can't drive anymore. Can't enjoy the thrill of my foot on the gas Of driving up Madison, eyeing some ass Can't cruise down the FDR, my mind is worn Got to use Twitter, cause I can't honk the hell out of my horn
This is Le Show, and you probably remember, maybe you don't. We're good at forgetting this stuff. A province of Afghanistan called Helmand, Helmand province. Uh, American troops faced heated fighting there until NATO's combat mission ended in 2014, supposedly, when uh, Former Vice President Biden said, we were out of Afghanistan come hell or high water in 2014. Well, U.S. Marines this week returned to Helmand province. The deployment of some 300 Marines to the poppy-growing southern province came one day after the resurgent Taliban announced the launch of their spring offensive. Helmand four years was the center of U.S. and British military intervention in Afghanistan, only for it to slip deeper into a quagmire of instability. The militants now effectively control or contest 10 of Helmand's 14 districts, funded by a huge opium harvest. Other news of AFPAC! The uh, mother of all bombs was dropped there a couple of weeks ago on a uh, set of caves, a network of caves, we were told, being used by the Islamic State. Yes, the Islamic State has moved into Afghanistan. 
They're not friends with the Taliban. They uh, fight against them as well. The uh, mother of all bombs supposedly killed upward of 50 fighters in the uh, cave network, which I'm looking forward to is where my next show will be on, the cave network. But um, we don't know if there were any civilians killed by the mother of all bombs, so-called because it's the largest non-nuclear explosive device ever produced by the hand of man. Bonobos haven't even gotten near it with with, with their devices. Oh, by the way, the... uh, Apropos of the dropping of the Moab, former former Afghan President Karzai criticized it. This is not the war on terror, he said, but the inhuman and most brutal misuse of our country as a testing ground for new and dangerous weapons. Unquote. Of course, the Taliban also denounced the attack, even though it was on their enemy, IS. But, you know, what are you going to do? And this week, two American troops were killed in an incident in Afghanistan, being investigated by the Pentagon as, quote, this, this, this is a term will sound familiar to people who were around during the Vietnam War, described by the Pentagon as, quote, friendly fire, unquote. That's how it looks from here. How does it look from there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, with President Ghani now in charge, you need us more than ever. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, otherwise known as the Empire of Graveyards. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Slick and Slack, the Outer Power Brothers. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan Red Crescent. Like the Red Cross, only worse. (laughs) (laughs) So, my younger brother, Mm -hmm. once again with renewed hostilities, it's clear that our nation's greatest import is war. (laughs) (laughs) Also with casualties to our allies, Mm -hmm. our greatest export. Uh, We we can't laugh at that. I know. We're breaking format. Mm -hmm. But, my younger brother, to those, including me, who sometimes doubted the endurance of our American friends... Mm -hmm. The past couple of weeks have proved one thing. And what is that? As long as the Americans can keep a war out of the media, it can go on forever. (laughs) (laughs) The war or the media? (laughs) Both. (laughs) Okay, that was the extra laugh we owed the network. Mm -hmm. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hi, this is Jim Teller. Long-time online listener, first-time caller. Online? Jim, I didn't think we had a website. I don't think APR has a computer. (laughs) (laughs) So how can you be hearing us online? Well, I have a friend in Kabul who holds up his phone to the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Be sure to tell him that we're ending our HD2 feed very soon. That's right. Unlike our regular broadcast... Someone was actually listening to that. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, Jim, Mm -hmm. you have an interesting last name, Teller. Mm -hmm. Any relation? Uh, To the magician, no. To the eminent atomic scientist, uh, a very distant one. Well, how do you know you're related, Jim? Uh, I do believe I, I got some of his genes. Well, you didn't get the gene for the thick Hungarian accent. <laughs> uh, no, sir, but I think I, I kind of inherited his knack for inventiveness in the uh, weaponry area. Really? As I recall my history of American war criminals, he was the father of the hydrogen bomb? That's correct, and I have to say in all humility that, uh, well, 
You remember the so-called mother of all bombs the U.S. dropped on a, a site in your country a, few, a couple weeks ago? Recall it. He wrote an op-ed denouncing it. Oh, the newspaper made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Really? What's that? A new green robe. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim Teller, what's your association with the mother of all bombs? Well, as I say, sir, in all humility, I'm the father of the mother of all bombs. Well, I was going to say, even over the phone, I can see the resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, Jim, uh -huh. you mean you designed the largest non-nuclear weapon ever devised by man? Well, sir, if you ask the Army or the Defense Department, they'll tell you no. Mm. Uh, they'll say it was devised by a task force or uh, in their most recent court filing that it was designed by a machine learning algorithm. Silly as that sounds. I mean... Oh, oh, hold on, Jim. Mm. You mentioned court. Are they suing you? Uh, no, sir. I'm in the process of suing them. What? You want the weapon back? <laughs> You're not planning to drop it on our truck. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big enough hole here already. <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. They, they, they can keep the weapon, but uh, all the publicity has been worth the kind of publicity you can't buy. Hmm. I'm, I'm looking for backing for my next project. But if people don't know that I'm the father of the MOAB, I'm about as likely to get backing as a, a Kickstarter for a polka band. <laughs> <laughs> so you are suing for recognition? Uh, well, I'm, I'm suing for major damages for the lack of recognition. But you'd settled for the recognition? <laughs> of course, I can't really negotiate on the radio. Despite uh, the fact that no one's listening? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, I... Uh, I wish you luck with the, the project, which I guess we can't ask you what it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wish you luck, at least in the abstract. Which means he doesn't know what he wishes you. <laughs> <laughs> you stop. But, uh, Jim, do you have a question for us? Well, you know, I do. I was over there for quite a while during the development phase. Mm -hmm. And as, as luck would have it, I fell in love with the culture. And with one individual in particular. Oh, you mean there's going to be a stepmother of the mother of all bombs? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just wondering what the what the attitude there is to an American marrying into an Afghan family. Well, I hate to generalize. And that's a generalization. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say you'd be welcomed into the family on one condition. Okay, what's that? that you can get them the heck out of Afghanistan. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Well, I guess our friend got a little recognition for his role in the MOAB just by calling in. Oh, absolutely. Now our call screener knows who he is. <laughs> hey, hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hello, this is Barzaghi, long-time Islamic State sympathizer, first-time caller. Well... We've had so many Taliban callers on this show. It's nice to welcome a different breed of terrorist. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not a terrorist. I just like their ideas. Really? What ideas in particular? Well, for one, terrorism. <laughs> uh, Barzaghi, we don't have much time. Uh, this Afghan Life has a special program on Afghan salesmen who sell doors door to door. Uh, do you have a question for us? 
Well, I was privy to the reports this week of two uh, American soldiers who uh, perished from what were, de- what were described as friendly fire. Well, it was on all the newscasts. Yes, that's where I was privy to it. Ah. Uh, my question is, how does one apply to be such a friend? Well, as far as I know, it's a fairly simple procedure. You just enlist in the Afghan army, go through a very short training period, then depart with the weapon they gave you. Uh, but that's a Taliban tactic. We hate them. Well, if the enemy of your enemy is your friend, and the friend of your enemy is your enemy, then the friend of your friend... In this government, the friend of your friend is fired. <laughs> Friendly fire. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Oh. We had help today from newlacrity.com. We protect your data by selling it to ourselves. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us next time we don't rerun a brand new edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. A bumper crop, starting with MSNBC's Joe Scarborough. He apologized to the co-host of the program he hosts, Mika Brzezinski, via Twitter. He called her snotty during Wednesday morning's episode of the cable program that Donald Trump likes to watch. I'm sorry, Scarborough tweeted that evening and implied that she had punched him in the face and got one of his teeth caught on her fist. Aside from that, everything's good. Deadline, Washington. A principal and her, actually, Montgomery County, Maryland. A principal and her elementary school are on investigation, under investigation after the school's district confirmed that she set up a smash space designed for teachers to relieve stress by using baseball bats on a broken rocking chair. In a letter to parents, Principal Barbara Lice apologized for setting up the space on school grounds was set up on March 8th. I got the idea after reading some business articles that discussed companies providing items to be smashed as a way to reduce stress. This was a lapse in judgment, she wrote. The space, which apparently was on the school's loading dock, is no longer there. Grayson Murray is apologizing for hitting on a high school girl on social media. The up-and-coming golfer responded to an innocent question on Twitter. Why does everyone hate on Grayson Murray? was the question from a young woman in Texas. Murray did a dive into her Twitter feed, which reportedly included recent prom photos, and then said, quote, I don't know, but hate the fact you're in high school. You are pretty, unquote. The exchange was captured in a screenshot, which went viral. Murray has advocated the PGA Tour players open up more in public media to help promote the game. And then, of course, he issued an apology on Twitter. In response to my recent Twitter comment, I apologize to anyone whom I offended, and most of all, I apologize to the young lady involved. I meant no disrespect to you. What are you doing after the tweet? No, he didn't say that. United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz, he's back. He apologized for the death of a three-foot-long giant rabbit on a recent flight from London to Chicago. It was not his. Quote, we are deeply sorry for the loss of anything from your luggage to, of course, a loved pet. He said, this is a part of an interview he did with Lester Holt on the Today Show. The uh, airline found itself in more hot water after Simon, a 10-month-old rabbit who was expected to grow into the world's largest rabbit, 
mysteriously died in the cargo hold on the flight from Heathrow to O'Hare. The current world's largest rabbit title is held by Simon's father, Darius, four feet four. The prized animal was being flown from the breeder to its new owner. It had a vet checkup just hours before takeoff and appeared to be healthy. United had previously apologized for the incident to the BBC. Quote, we are saddened to hear this news. The safety and well-being of all the animals that travel of us with, with us is of the utmost importance to United Airlines and our pet safe team. Unquote. Munoz says the airline will be making numerous policy changes to improve customer experience since Dr. Dow was dragged off the plane. They're now going to offer $10,000, up to $10,000 for passengers who volunteer to take a later flight. Why would anybody take less when they've told you what the uh, top figure is now? Oh, I'll bargain down from there. Don't worry. And they will limit the use of police to safety and security issues. And they will no longer say that anybody has been reaccommodated. Actor Orlando Bloom said he wasn't taking a slant at Gypsy, that is to say Roma, Roma, Roma and other traveler communities, when he used the word pikey in a live radio interview on BBC to promote his new film. He said he was a pikey from Kent. The National Gypsy Traveler Roma Council said his use of the racially abusive term is worrying. The presenter, Nick Grimshaw, later apologized on air to listeners of the program. Bloom said after the interview, I've come from Kent and I grew up with a lot of like freewheeling, cool, interesting characters like that. I certainly wasn't taking a slant at that at all. I'm very respectful. BBC. BBC's host said, apologies if you were offended by anything that Orlando may have said. If, apology, he's a bit of a loose cannon, added the host. BBC apologized to listeners for any offense caused. U.S. Senator Mike Enzi from Wyoming made comments about men wearing tutus. It sparked outrage this week. And then he called Wyoming's best-known cross-dresser and apologized. That would be Larry Sissy Goodwin. 70 years old of Douglas, Wyoming, said he expected, accepted the apology during the lengthy talk. We had a nice conversation. He offered an apology, and I have no doubt to believe it was genuine. He was very genuine with his comments. Disgraced former public, uh, Chicago Public Schools CEO Barbara Breed Bennett will spend 54 months in prison after a federal judge sentenced her Friday for the years-long kickback scheme she ran with while chief of the district, which is perennially short of cash. While serving as the chief for three years, she steered millions of dollars in principal training contracts to her former supplier, the Soups Academy. She tearfully apologized to her family, colleagues, and students before a packed courtroom during Friday afternoon's hearing, saying, they deserve better. I ought to be punished, she said. I'm remorseful, and I pray to God to help me find a way to redeem myself. She faced nearly two dozen charges, eventually pleading guilty to a lone count of wire fraud. Don't be defrauding those wires. They're gullible. Fighters loyal to the Islamic State militant group have apologized for launching an attack on Israeli forces last year in the Golan Heights region, according to Israel's former defense minister, Moshe Yalon. He resigned in 2016, made the remark while speaking with a correspondent of Israel's Channel 10. The ex-defense minister was apparently referencing an attack last November by the ISIS-affiliated Khalid Ibn Walid army on Israeli units in the Golan Heights. Israel responded by launching airstrikes. 
There was one case recently where Daesh, which is what they sometimes call IS, opened fire and apologized, he said. He didn't specify how or when this apology took place. His representatives have declined to comment further. The November attack was the first and only clash since between Israel and IS, which Tel Aviv has labeled a terrorist organization. IS calls for the destruction of Israel. IS apologizes, ladies and gentlemen. And that is news. Dateline Oxford, England, Belgium's Catholic Church. Why this is datelined Oxford, England, I'll never know. It's a story about Belgium. Belgium's Catholic Church has apologized for its role in mistreating mixed-race people who were born in colonial times to European fathers and African mothers and later taken away for adoption. The history of many Metis, born of a Congolese Rwandan or Burundian mother and a white father serving in one of these countries, is an obscure episode of Belgian colonization, the Bishop's Conference said in a statement. These children were long designated pejoratively as mulattoes, while the colonial authorities, both civil and ecclesiastical, consider them a real problem. We express regret for the part played in this by the Catholic Church. An official church apology was delivered by Bishop Johann Bonny of Antwerp uh, this week. It said many mixed-race people had been placed in orphanages and boarding schools run by Belgian religious orders, permanently cutting those people off from their families. This was the beginning of a sorrowful separation and long search, the bishop said. All the good intentions and motivations behind their placement at institutions led to an alienation which was even greater given their origin and true identity. About 20,000 people were believed born to white fathers and African mothers in the Belgian-ruled Congo, Rwanda, Burundi. Many were forcibly fostered by Catholic orders and sent to Belgium for adoption in 1959-1962 without their mother's consent. A spokesman for the Bishop Conference said uh, information was being sought from church groups in Rome and Africa for establishing the true identity of mixed-race citizens. It took till last year for this issue to be raised, and the church wishes to apologize for the whole of society, not just for itself, said the Monsignor. Although no firm statistics are available, he says we know a lot of these children came from Catholic missions who did good charitable work but failed to preserve the children's identity. Well, six of one, out the other. The city of Montreal, Canada, has apologized for a video created to celebrate Montreal's identity that only features what appear to be white people. The two-minute video was part of a campaign to get Montrealers to propose people, places, and organizations they believe are vital to the city's cultural heritage. They all appear to be white. Two days later, the video had been taken down from the Montreal's Facebook page and YouTube channel. The city said the criticism it received about the video prompted its removal. We sincerely apologize that the video did not sufficiently represent the values of inclusiveness and equality that the municipal administration of Montreal's population advocates, said Louis Beauchamp, director of the city's communication service. The mayor personally apologized at City Hall. They made a mistake. End of story, said Denny Coderre. We're sorry. That won't happen again. If it happens again, I'll kick ass, unquote. The mayor. That's not the mayor of Toronto. It's the mayor of Montreal. Ilya Nastassi apologized for his comments about Serena Williams and his outburst during a Fed Cup match. Ja Rule, rapper, apologized for the shambles that a luxury music festival in the Bahamas, the Fire Festival, eventually became. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has repeated, of Japan has repeated his apologies over a gaffe by a cabinet minister in charge of rebuilding a section of Japan after the tsunami and the thing. 
And those, ladies and gentlemen, are the Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on the equally mighty Soho Radio in London, available around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshear.com and kcsn.org, available as a free, available for, well, as a free podcast. I'll go that far. On Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, tunein.com, and wwno.org, and available as a, uh, for your smartphone through stitcher.com. And it would be just like President Trump being able to drive again, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desk. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO for his help with today's broadcast. And me, I'm on the Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The email address for this program, a list of the music heard here on, and your opportunity to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Who wouldn't? All at harryshearer.com. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from stormy New Orleans.